This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Brigitte Bootner to tell us all about her book titled The Mineral and the Visual, Precious Stones in Medieval Secular Culture, published by Penn State University Press in 2022. This is a fascinating and quite honestly gorgeous book that helps us understand um, some very shiny objects, right? Jewels, gemstones, the objects that they're in, in the European Middle Ages, helping us understand kind of why were crowns so shiny? What were the role of gems in secular medieval art? Not just crowns, I promise, though they are pretty shiny, so we are going to talk about them. Um, Gems are fascinating. There's loads going on there that I think a lot of us, myself included, may not realize when we see these items in museums today. And so I'm so excited, Brigitte, to welcome you to the podcast to tell us all about this. Well, thank you very much, um, Miranda, for this uh, wonderful invitation. So to share um, the fruit of my uh, research. So I'm um, Brigitte Bootner, as you mentioned, and I teach medieval art at Smith uh, College. Uh, For listeners who don't know um, this institution, we're located in Western Massachusetts, about two hours uh, west from Boston, and we are a small liberal arts uh, college. So, uh, you wanted to know uh, what brought me to uh, write uh, this uh, book. So, um, the genesis of a research project of a book uh, is always a bit mysterious, isn't it? Uh, It's not like one wakes up one day, one bright morning with a fully hatched project in one's mind, Uh, but it's rather a kind of long, at least for me, a long, often fitful and protracted process during which uh, one uh, sifts through ideas and materials, one tests, uh, you know, uh, these ideas and then evaluates them and then retains some and discards uh, them. So in this case, the gestation period, that period of research, of finding material, assembling the corpus, the body of materials I wanted to talk about, uh, was particularly lengthy uh, in part because some of the materials uh, as you know from having read the book, uh, are really quite obscure, and in particular, you know, on the visual side, uh, there are a number of unpublished um, images. Period. So that obviously, uh, you know, takes time uh, to uh, assemble. I can say that the initial seed was uh, planted after I finished uh, a fairly substantial article on practices of uh, gift giving in late medieval French uh, courts, uh, specifically on New Year's Day, uh, which was essentially kind of the equivalent of modern uh, Christmas. So that when uh, that's the day on which the bulk of the gift exchanges uh, happen. Um, 
Now, I wrote that piece from the perspective of uh, illuminated manuscripts, which is the particular area in which I was trained. And a little bit to my surprise, actually, I came to realize that that category of artwork, illuminated manuscripts, uh, which really holds a very prominent place in the history of medieval art uh, throughout the Middle Ages, book production was a really major uh, enterprise, and especially illustrated uh, books. Uh, But uh, so in that context of gift giving, I came to realize that actually the kind of valuation, the monetary valuation, but just also the sheer numbers of manuscripts, which was actually far less uh, than that of gem sets uh, objects. So that's really kind of how I came to understand that what we maybe value the most wasn't necessarily valued as much. There's a kind of inverse proportion going on uh, there. And I think that scholarship has tended to shy away from shiny, glitzy, jeweled arts because there is something a little bit suspicious, a little bit you know superficial about it. Uh, but you know what inventories uh, and other documents tell me is to take uh, that category of works really kind of seriously and at face value and really try to get at what you know really constituted uh, the uh, value of these uh, works. So, in particular, I mean, one of the things one should also say is that the amount of jeweled arts and actually also unmounted that medieval collectors amassed was absolutely staggering. Uh, And uh, importantly, too, uh, when we uh, consider that, the vast majority has disappeared. And so, again, it's a little bit, you know, uh, it's a kind of emptied out uh, territory. So we have good written descriptions, notably in inventories, but there are actually relatively few um, works that survive, at least for uh, the secular domain, the survival rate of jewel object, metalwork objects in the religious domain, particularly liturgical plate and reliquaries, uh, is uh, much uh, higher. Hmm. Thank you for explaining that trajectory. As you said, it is always a bit mysterious sort of how someone comes to a book. So fascinating to start off with that. I'd love to pick up on something you've mentioned, the idea of kind of what we might value today in terms of gems is not necessarily something we can assume that uh, medieval Europe had the same ideas about. And in fact, in the book, you have this brilliant quotation um, talking about what sorts of gems really were going on in the early medieval period. And you describe it as a collection of specimens we recognize at once, others we call by the same name, though they no longer mean the same thing, and more that have devolved into pure signifiers, assuming that they were ever more than that. So that's already three really interesting categories of gems. Um, Can you maybe take us through them with some examples to get our heads around kind of what these people thought about gems, what they meant by it, and what was precious? Sure. Um, So perhaps as a kind of more general, broader preface, uh, one should underscore that there is a danger of uh, erasing the differences in approach, say, between the modern and the medieval understanding of mineralogy, uh, because in part it is because much of the vocabulary is the same. So for example, I'll give you an example, a frequent anachronism that is made is the use of the category of semi-precious stones uh, to typically designate things like opals and agates and amethysts. Whereas, uh, and so, you know, we, we, we call them semi-precious and we reserve the category of precious stones only for really the top, the diamonds, ruby, sapphires, and a few more. So those were already very highly prized in the Middle Ages, uh, but that does not at all entail that the others, and there were many, many others of both appearing in written sources, but also actually being used, that they were considered to 
be semi-precious. That kind of binary opposition is really very anachronistic. Um, it's better to think as a that there was a sort of continuing sliding scale, if you will, uh, that led from relatively unimportant stones to the most uh, valued. So, um, you know, more concretely, um, uh, the first uh, thing I mentioned in this quote is that we assume also sometimes, or the assumption is made that when we see the same word, it designates the same object, but not so. So, for example, emerald, which is the term that medieval sources uh, use, uh, use already, uh, but it uh, most often or more often than not federated kind of host uh, of uh, green uh, stones. So not only emerald, properly speaking, but say things like peridot, olivine, malachite uh, were included. And uh, most, uh, you know, interestingly and tellingly, even green glass. Uh, so there's some um, well-known objects in actually church uh, treasuries that are routinely described as consisting of emerald, but because they have survived, uh, you know, we know that it's uh, just uh, green glass, but that was the conception. If something was intensely green, it was sufficient for it to be considered to be emerald. Uh, likewise, just another example quickly, uh, sapphire. So again, the term is used, but up until the 12th century, uh, it really, and confusingly, designated lapis lazuli. And that's easy to say because uh, the way in which the stone is described is as an opaque speckled uh, stone. So we know it is actually lapis lazuli. And it is only in the course of the 12th and 13th century that sapphire, sapphire came to designate what it does in, uh, you know, for us. Um, for the stones, uh, the pure signifiers, um, maybe it's good to kind of uh, evoke a Pliny's natural history here. Uh, so that was written, it's a vast encyclopedia that was written in the first uh, century CE and includes a book, book 37, which is the last one on stones, on gem uh, stones. Uh, and that really served as the foundation of medieval writings about stone as well. Now, Pliny lists uh, some 300 uh, specimens. That's a lot. Uh, so, uh, you know, there will be the diamonds and the emeralds and so forth. But then there are also a host, a great amount, actually, that have fanciful names. So, for example, he speaks of an androdamas, uh, which uh, translates to man tamer. But from his uh, precise description, we can identify it with a black uh, pyrite. Uh, so there are many stones like that, you know, which will carry fanciful names, imaginative names, but the description is sufficient uh, to allow us to identify them with reasonable accuracy. But then there are some, those are the pure signifiers that, um, you know, where we don't really know really how they originated. So for example, Pliny also has a stone he calls Hephaestitis, or the stone of Hephaestus, that is the Greek god of volcanoes, of blacksmith, of forges. Um, and he says it's red and highly reflective, which is really not much of a help at all. Uh, and what happened then in the course of the medieval reception of Pliny and the copying of his text and the kind of making of medieval uh, books of stones, the Hephaestitis uh, evolved into epistetes, which means nothing at all. You see, so that's what a pure signifier is, right? Uh, where we have the relationship between the name and the actual object uh, has been kind of completely uncoupled, has been lost. Mm. Thank you for explaining that to us um, and taking us through the examples. It is, I think, so important to, before we get into the details of the kind of meanings of the jewels and how they were used to start with that idea of, wait a second, what are we actually talking about? Um, so thank you for giving us that introduction. Thinking a, 
still about kind of specific gems and what people thought about them. Um, I was interested to read in the book that a lot of the gems, maybe even all of them, um, had virtues assigned to them. It wasn't just the color um, or the visual aspect that was necessarily significant. There was a whole kind of added dimension. How were virtues assigned to gems? Kind of which went with which? How, how were these sort of linkages developed? Did they change over time? Or was it kind of like this gem has this virtue attached to it and that's the way it is for centuries? Right. So the business of virtues, of powers uh, inhering in stones, of agency, if you will, in stone is enormously important. And that's really where medieval understanding, or I should say pre-modern understanding, radically differs from modern approaches to mineralogy. Um, You know, our rocks are kind of inert, right? They don't do really very much. We can do things to them, but they don't much do to us. Well, that was completely the opposite uh, in ancient and medieval uh, knowledge. And so I, uh, mineralogy is kind of a modern terminology. So I prefer to think in terms of lapidary knowledge. Lapidaries were the book books on stone. So that's where that basic kind of body of material gets uh, processed, gets described. Uh, so I think it's a useful, you know, category to work with lapidary knowledge. So in lapidary knowledge, uh, the very definition of the preciousness of precious stones, if you will, hinged on the presence of these virtues, virtutis in Latin, that is the powers. So without powers, a stone was a mere rock. It would not be included in a lapidary uh, text, uh, no matter how expensive or beautiful, as you alluded to, it could be. So it really is uh, the presence of this agency of these powers that is essential for the definition of what a precious stone is uh, in that uh, tradition. Um Now, uh, the belief in powers and herring in stones is very, very, is millennial old. So it goes back. uh, It's really lost in the mist of time. It goes back to Vedic India. It goes back to Pharaonic Egypt. It goes back to ancient Mesopotamia. And then sort of all of that sort of coalesces, converges uh, into the first uh, written treatises, treatises properly speaking that we have, which is in Hellenistic times. And from there, actually, Actually, these texts, these Hellenistic texts served as foundations for lapidaries, uh, both in the medieval West or in the medieval West, but also in the Byzantine world, in the Islamic world, in the Persian world, and even in China. I've read Chinese lapidaries, much more recent lapidaries, and they basically vehiculate very much the same uh, ideas with this business about uh, virtues. So uh, it is fascinating that despite this very long-lived tradition, the association of each stone with a set of virtues um, is actually remarkably stable. So, you know, there's some peripheral descriptions or properties that will change, but the core uh, really uh, stays, uh, you know, again, remarkably the same uh, no matter when you are in this very uh, long uh, history. So, for example, example, I just talked about uh, the emerald. The emerald uh, was really consistently uh, um, associated with ophthalmic properties. So it was really um, praised, hiled, recommended uh, for uh, curing problems with eyesight, uh, with soothing, hurting eyes. Uh, It was also kind of by extension associated with tempering hot passions, but then also even sort of more ominously, uh, it was described as shielding from uh, demonic attacks, protecting infants in their cribs. And if that were not enough, Uh, also from um, kind of guarding from bouts of epilepsy or lessening bouts of epilepsy. So you see there's a huge range, right, that goes from the medical to the magical to the practical 
practical uh, that a stone like the emerald was believed uh, to be able uh, to uh, address. Now, uh, to answer your question a little bit more specifically, in some cases, we can see that there is a kind of associative link between the appearance of a stone and what it does. So, for example, the amethyst, which is the purple variety of quartz, uh, kind of always is uh, connected uh, to um, things around wine, wine consumption. Uh, It apparently improves the quality of wine. It prevents wine from turning into into vinegar, which was always an issue in medieval times. Or uh, it even uh, is said to lessen uh, hangovers. I have yet to try that, so I can't say if that actually works. But you see there the color of the wine. In fact, there is a variety of the amethyst that was called the Stone of Dionysius. So that's kind of obvious. Likewise, the hepatitis, uh, because uh, the name, so liver, uh, so that was associated with interventions like staunching blood, curing liver diseases. But those are really relatively few. I mean, other than that, you know, it seems like it's very difficult to explain why certain stones do certain things rather than others. Hmm. To be honest, I'm sort of glad that you're like, yeah, don't really know why they came up with that one, because reading some of them in the book, I mean, obviously the examples you've just gave are really good evidence of that. It's kind of like, huh, okay, what what made you think that that had anything to do with the liver? Okay, great. Um, So really fascinating to understand these linkages and, as you've mentioned, the durability of them, which, of course, we know uh, one of the ways we know this is from those lapidaries that you talked about from all the different places. Um, Obviously, even just from giving you that information, they're clearly quite helpful uh, documents, artifacts. But can you tell us more about them, especially sort of the intellectual weight that they had in the late antique and early modern cultures? Sure. So um, about lapidary, the belief in the powers of stones, uh, one should also, or I should add that, you know, it was not at all a kind of two-tiered system of belief, meaning Um, you know, educated intellectuals sort of looked down, frowned upon uh, these virtues, the business of virtues, whereas gullible folks, right, uh, and kind of folkloric tradition and superstitious tradition believed in the powers of stone. Not at all. Uh, So lapidaries and that really came as a surprise to me. Um, The sort of mainstream, main, really influential, very popular uh, texts were for the most part authored from some of the best minds in their period. So really, really learned, deeply learned people uh, who uh, took the task of describing the mineral realm the way they understood it uh, to heart and really seriously and just, you know, like, Uh, The animal kingdom was inventoried and described in bestiaries and the plant world in herbals. Uh, So the mineral world was uh, translated, was couched, was archived, if you will, uh, in uh, lapidaries. So uh, again, the bulk of lapidaries, at least until the 13th century, are written by churchmen. Uh, Then it... um, and a kind of uh, in keeping with a general movement in medieval culture, it gets a little bit more secularized, and we have a number of excellent uh, court poets uh, who write uh, lapidary uh, books. Uh, there are hundreds of manuscripts that contain these lapidaries that survive, and that's always the best indication of the popularity of uh, a particular genre. And we also know that uh, the reading uh, audience, the reading public of lapidaries was really a cross-section of medieval society. So we know of monks, nuns, friars, clerics, teachers, doctors, lawyers, merchants, and many, many nobles uh, who owned and read uh, these uh, books uh, of uh, stones. 
so uh, it really, um, you know, they commanded a lot of, uh, of certainly, they had a lot of intellectual uh, clout. If you wanted to know something about the natural world, that's the text that you uh, went uh, to, the physical world. Um, mm. And what sort of information was not included in the lapidaries um, or was included? So, for example, if you flip to the page on Emerald, right, what sorts of things was it going to talk about, but also what was it going to leave out? That's a great question, actually, because... Uh, in part, it, it it will allow me to address a little bit, you know, what uh, what my book is also written against. <laughs> I think one writes as much book to argue a certain mm-hmm. position yep. as uh, you know argue against. Uh, so uh, the just as the properties, the virtues remain fairly consistent over a long period of time, so does the descriptive armature of um, of the lab. So for each stone, you will have a basic description of its aspect, mostly visual aspect, certainly at the minimum, the colors, sometimes a little bit the texture, the shapes. Uh, And then we go into into the virtues. And again, there's sort of array, medical, magical, practical, etc. So that's really very consistent from lapidary to lapidary and from stone uh, to stone. Uh, So actually, Actually, readers, you know, could expect to find the same sort of information, uh, no matter what text they open, which I think was also part of this sense of uh, lapidaries giving them a sense of mastery over the natural world, uh, the physical world. um, And that was certainly uh, important in terms of the kind of scientific conceptual work that lapidaries uh, did. So what they exclude, at least the main main mainstream uh, texts uh, is somewhat surprisingly uh, the sort of allegorical uh, side. Uh, so all the most uh, popular of these texts really shy away from endowing the stones with kind of moral, Christian, allegorizing spiritual uh, meanings. There are some texts that are allegorized lapidaries, uh, but they're relatively few, and they're certainly not nearly as influential as the ones that are not allegorized. And that's a little bit of a surprise because I think there is a tendency to over-spiritualize medieval cultural production. So that's part of what, you know, this book is also written against, um, is to show that medieval author, even, again, very prominent churchmen and theologians, uh, could very well approach the natural world, natural objects, they could celebrate them, they could admire their beauty, their workings, without having to necessarily immediately reach for a religious uh, interpretation. Mm, That's a very useful point to make, right? Because we do, as we've talked about already, have these assumptions. Um, So thank you for explaining kind of what's not there and why it not being there is tells us things. Right. So uh, just... I like I like to quote in that regard, and I I do it in the book. Uh, one of the great historians of science, his name is Lynn uh, Thorndike, who has written a monumental like six volume, eight volume maybe uh, work on the history of science uh, in the Middle Ages and early modern uh, period. And uh, he once observed, writing about bestiaries, that uh, this is what he says in the main medieval man uh, represented animals in art because they were fond of animals, not because they were fond of allegories. And so that really has become my principle of interpretation as well. Uh, but uh, again, it, it it sort of pushes back against the tendency to, which in religious text is absolutely justified, right? But it is not everything that uh, the Middle Ages put out there. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mm, very much so. And I want to kind of, in, in that sense, think about what else is happening um, in the Middle Ages and think about lapidaries not just as repositories of knowledge about stones, about gems, but also as like objects, right? They're essentially books of a kind. Um, and this is the same sort of time that we're seeing manuscripts. And often we do think of the religious manuscripts, but there is obviously a lot more going on. So if we think about lapidaries sort of in that context, in what ways were they groundbreaking contributions to sort of the wider world of manuscripts? Yes, that's another, um, you know, crucial, at least, discovery from me. So there are, um, as you say, there is maybe the bulk of the production of medieval illuminated book is of a religious nature of one kind or another. And there is excellent scholarship. But there is indeed also a kind of more natural scientific tradition. Um, In the case of the bestiaries, which are illustrated from very early on, they tend to come with moral interpretation. But say in the in the tradition of the herbal, for example, which is a very significant tradition as well, there's very, very little. I mean, they're really sort of geared towards medicinal uses, drug uses. Um, and lapidaries are in the same vein, a uh, matter of fact. What uh, what has been a real pleasure of discovering in the course of my research is that there are many, many more illustrated uh, manuscripts uh, of uh, lapidaries or of lapidary sections when uh, we're talking about encyclopedias. Uh, so that's really been very exciting uh, to me to stumble more or less intentionally, I should say, upon quite a number of previously unpublished uh, images. And so the larger point that it enables me to make um, is that mineral iconography is not an invention of the print age in the early modern period in the 16th century, but is really something that gets going in the Middle Ages. And in fact, it goes back at least to the 10th century, so very early on. Now, it's true that uh, it's a more fitful, intermittent tradition, especially, again, if you compare it to the herbal and the bestiary. But nonetheless, throughout the centuries, there are these really quite imaginative, creative uh, sort of miniatures of of, uh, stones. What does change in the 16th century with mineralogical publications then is that their illustrations become a great deal more realistic uh, and they really kind of get at portraying particular specimens of stones. Often, in fact, those were specimens that the authors of those books had in their collections, in their cabinets of curiosities. So by comparison to that, the medieval approach, medieval portrayals are generic, they're abstract, they're oval pebbles, not terribly exciting. But I think what they do, what is exciting, is they planted the very idea that the mineral realm was worthy of visual representation. And I think that's a huge contribution. 
Absolutely. Um, and also one of the ways that makes your book beautiful um, to read is because you have some examples of this um, visual element in the text itself. Um, but before listeners get too jealous of the prettiness of the book that we're obviously talking about mm-hmm. and not showing you, um, I'd like to move on to another section of the book, um, sigils. Sigils are fascinating um, to many people and many, many cultures over a lot of time. So I wasn't really surprised to see them turn up in your book. I was, however, intrigued to read that sigils were not seen necessarily as kind of cool or gorgeous or whatever. More often they were seen as worrying or troublesome or concerning. Uh, Why? And how did people try and get around these concerns? Yes, correct. So, um... So sigils, perhaps we should say, basically designates in lapidary knowledge uh, what in practice uh, we call cutstones, that is cameos cut in relief and intaglios um, incised or etched into the body of um, the stones. Um, So it's that kind of art. Uh, In the textual tradition, uh, those were indeed uh, known as uh, sigils. So basically, it's stones with figurative representations. Now, the art of cutting stones did not entirely disappear in the Middle Ages, but for the most part, it was not available. So when we see cameos and intaglios on objects and, say, on reliquaries, they're really legion, we know that the bulk uh, where we use stones from ancient times, mostly Hellenistic, Roman, late antique, and early Byzantine. Um, And for the former that meant that their iconographies were really kind of uh, obscure, undecipherable for the medieval viewer because they were pagan and quite often, in fact, uh, with overtly magical uh, content. So these, some of these intaglios especially. Uh, so that was already troublesome, right? Uh, and... Um, And then quite a bit later, with the reception, the great reception movement of Islamic science, or one should say Arabo-Aristotelian science, because really, uh, you know, it's a reinterpretation of the natural books by uh, Aristotle. Anyway, this whole kind of constellation of texts, many of which deal with more or less forbidden knowledge, with occult sciences, with astrology, with magic. So, uh, Texts that deal with sigils and their powers also get translated into the medieval West. We're talking late 12th and especially uh, 13th century. So there's a kind of aura of suspicion already. And more conservative thinkers uh, will reject that whole body of material. And with it, the notion that stone stones edged with sigils have a kind of double potency, right? One that inheres in the stone itself, and then one added by the figurative representation. Again, everybody, nobody had a problem with the powers that were inserted in the stone, in the in the materiality of the stone itself. Uh, it's when figure, figuration comes in because that's a kind of, you know, artificial addition. And so... Uh, It seems a little strange, but again, some of the greatest mind of the 13th century really grappled with that problem. You know, are these legitimate images? And if so, were they naturally inserted in stones? And if not, how so? Or are they suspect? And do we have to imagine a kind of uh, demonic maybe agency here that sort of pumped uh, you know, from the outside, uh, these virtutes into uh, the sigils. Um, and if you allow me, I would just like to acknowledge one of my great heroes uh, here, which is Albert the Great, Albertus Magnus, uh, who is uh, was a Dominican theologian and natural scientist of the scholastic age. And so he grapples with both the agency of stones and of sigils in his landmark publication, uh, the Book uh, of Minerals, the 
mineralibus. Uh, and so that's a book, for example, that goes, that is read and commented and, you know, increasingly rejected, but nonetheless is an absolute point of reference way into the 17th and 18th uh, century. Uh, so really important. But so he comes up with a very sophisticated, complicated, grand theory uh, that uh, the powers are activated by cosmic motions by the stars and the planets they imprint impress themselves into rocky matrices uh, or rocky matter uh, but crucially uh, through the mediation of human creativity so you see he brings together the heavens uh, the earth and a human agency. So it's a really kind of breathtaking, beautiful explanation, totally natural scientific, uh, that, you know, he proposes to explain the powers of the sigils. Thank you for taking us through that. Um, and I'm glad you brought in those examples. It, you know, why not? This is, this is the interesting stuff. Um, so thinking about that kind of the reuse of jewels, I found fascinating. Um, and kind of the different bits of knowledge that are coming in, because I'd love to turn our conversation to uh, maybe the shiniest bit that I mentioned right at the introduction. And I think I'm probably not the only one that kind of mind went immediately to this when we talked about when we mentioned medieval gems, um, crowns, right? Medieval crowns have a whole bunch of very large jewels on the front of them, often all over them. Can you tell us about kind of why large jewels were such a big part of medieval crowns um, and sort of what gems turned up on crowns more than others and why? Yeah, sure. And we have had a spectacular illustration of gem-covered crowns recently, right, with the death of the queen, your queen, and the coronation. And I was really very struck how, you know, the British uh, royal regalia uh, really kind of uh, were a sort of artifactal ersatz uh, for Elizabeth um, during her funeral uh, procession. And of course, the shininess, the luminosity uh, was of particular, was a very moving sort of illustration, uh, you know, kind of a little bit what I, uh, what I tried to, to show. So gems, in addition to gold and perhaps uh, to a minor extent, uh, silver in the case of uh, regal artifacts, are really the material that uh, is the most uh, conducive uh, to manifest the notion that the regal body is a body of luminosity. So the regal body is a kind of reflection of the divine body on earth, and as such, uh, it is more luminous, more shiny um, than you know the bodies of common uh, mortals. And I think again in you know in the recent future procession, we saw that very well, um, that the gems, the regalias, or the gem-covered regalias, uh, are there to say that the royal body is really an eternal body. And in that sense, it's also different from anybody else. That's a theory that goes back uh, to a wonderful book by a great historian, Ernst uh, Kantorovich. Uh, the book is called The King's uh, Two uh, Bodies. And so uh, one of the things he posits is that where he talks about the royal uh, super body. So that's the kind of the body of the royal office that is internal, uh, that is untarnishable, uh, that is absolute, that is perfect. And it's this royal super body that I think the use of gem encrusted and the best, the largest, the priciest, the fanciest gems uh, really kind of enacted uh, in, you know, the use of uh, regalia during especially coronation procedures. Hmm. And as you've mentioned, right, we might think of this as, oh, that's just a medieval thing. Well, as you mentioned, as you've said, right, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II and the new King of England, these things are very much still with us, um, quite visibly with us in times 
like this. Um, and a bunch of the things that were apparent in the funeral on the coronation, uh, you trace in the book have a very clear origin, right? Of the many bits of regalia, we see things like diadems. We see things like jeweled crosses, for example, on the orb that they hold at the coronation. Um, and you point to the invention of these by Constantine the Great, right? Quite a long time ago. And another brilliant quote from the book, you call them visually striking, conceptually innovative, and typologically formative, which is a fabulous phrase. <laughs> Would you mind taking us through kind of these three pieces of the invention of the diadem and the jeweled cross? Uh, sure, let me try to I'll piece that together again. But so the visually striking, you know, uh, references what I was just saying. So on regal crowns and, you know, regal crowns, just as is the case with actual crowns, they're worn only for a very limited amount of time. But that doesn't matter. The, the thing that matters is that they're symbolically central in the moment uh, in which a king becomes a king and a queen becomes a queen. That's really a kind of operative thing. Uh, and in fact, there was that sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of almost endearing moment where uh, King Charles III had a little hard time fitting his crown on his head, right? So they're really not meant to be necessarily, you know, worn or worn for a long uh, time. What is Aside from the longevity of both the coronation ritual and the objects that support that ritual, uh, what is really interesting, fascinating, as you said, is that there is a point of origin that is very rare when new formats start. We cannot usually pinpoint exactly, you know, when that moment happens and even less attach it to a proper uh, name. So I think Constantine the Great develops and he actually experiments with the format of jewel diadems and diadem designates uh, the soft cloth uh, head gear that eventually then hardens, crystallizes into the metallic uh, gem studded object, but his soft cloth diadem was already studded with gems and uh, pearls. So he experiments uh, with that and then adopts it as a permanent emblem of absolute uh, power and really kind of launches that tradition just as he launches the tradition of the jewel-covered uh, uh, cross. And I think he was very aware, he and his designers, uh, that these were visually striking objects uh, because, again, you know, access to these superlative gems was by definition uh, limited to the upper echelons of uh, society, but also because they have that, this extra dose of luminosity. But I think the conceptually innovative um, is also uh, there. I think that Constantine and certainly the medieval rulers that sort of followed in his footstep uh, were aware that it was more than a status symbol. It was more than a kind of glitzy, you know, thing they put on their head. Uh, it was really, again, a power object that made their regal power really tangible to onlookers. Uh, we are in societies that have relatively little read, uh, written sources, right? It doesn't, you know, power isn't channeled through legal texts or parliamentary decisions. So the question really becomes, how do you experience, you know, authority and power uh, in, uh, in largely oral societies. And I think that that's where objects really play, just like gesture, say, in ritual action, play an absolutely fundamental role. Mm. Thank you for linking in with those other aspects. Um, I think it really does kind of give a sense of why these things last so long. Mm -hmm. um, which is absolutely fascinating. And speaking of things lasting so long, though in this case, less in terms of material culture and more in terms of stories, we already have this idea of stories, right? The moment of coronation being a thing. You talk in the book about um, the sort of 
the practical side of, you know, where do these gems come from? <laughs> and where do people think these gems come from? And there's some really fantastical stories. And sometimes they have kind of clear links to something in real life. And sometimes they seem to be deeply unrelated to the actual process of gem acquisition in Western Europe at this time. So can you help us kind of do a bit of comparison between these literary tropes about where gems come from and how they're acquired versus the practical realities of gem trading and economic networks during this period? Yeah, sure. So um, that's the kind of aspect that I tackle in the third part of my, the third and last part of my uh, book, uh, which is more limited in terms of chronology, simply because, uh, you know, I wanted to always link the written, the word and the image, the written and the visual record. And so even though there is trade and there is travel narratives to some degree before the later Middle Ages, there's very very little in terms of illustration. So I really kind of focused on from the 12th century onward to the 15th uh, century. Uh, so in we have um, so the kind of, again, the, the armature of my argument uh, is provided by two major texts. Uh, one is the entirely fictional letter of Prester John with the entirely fictional Prester John, this kind of ruler living in the Far East, uh, but everybody believed in his existence. That was written in the late 12th century. And then a century later, I focus on Marco, or I take as a kind of guiding um, uh, work, Marco Polo's uh, travels uh, to uh, China. So in both of these texts, and they vary tremendously uh, in a sort of approach and understanding, and one, one is largely fictional, the other is largely factual, but they share the embrace of mineral tropes. So that, of course, uh, was uh, really interesting uh, to me. So in the letter of Prester John, again, you know, there's very, it's a static universe. It's grandiose. There are gem-filled rivers. There are crystalline palaces with 300 steps made, each of a different stone. So it's, it's very breathtaking and grandiose, but it's essentially static. In Marco Polo's universe, on the other hand, it's an eminently mobile commercial world. So gems are now commodities that you can source in precise locations. Uh, in, it's not no longer the sort of vague fabled East, but it is pearl fishing off the coast of Sri Lanka and Polo gives a famous um, and very detailed and accurate description of that. Uh, it is diamonds in India. It is lapis lazuli in uh, present-day Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a located world. And that largely maps uh, with the actual commerce that really picks up in the 13th uh, century. Um, and that brought to Western buyers, to Western consumers, uh, you know, the most prized, the most coveted stones, which were called the Orient stones, so diamonds, the emeralds, etc., uh, to Western consumers with reasonable regularity and in, you know, much greater uh, quantities than uh, previously. Um, even if polo is, matter of fact, can be exceptionally perceptive in his approach to this very, very diverse world that he describes. The original title of his book is The Description of the World, Not Travels. Uh, he nonetheless also feels that he kind of has to hype, uh, you know, mineral, mineral riches. And so he resorts uh, to some kind of uh, tried conventional motif. So, for example, uh, that has a very long history. The diamonds were said to have been extracted or be found in a snake-infested eagle-guarded valley in central uh, India. Uh, so, you know, Western readers were somewhat expecting that trope, uh, but it sort of heightened, uh, right, the sort of um, 
excitement, uh, you know, it was dangerous uh, territory. And so I found an observation by the sociologist Georg Simmel really helpful in making me think through that uh, material and through those uh, tropes. He said that sheer distance, i.e. if something comes through the long distance global trade, is really not enough to create value, uh, not enough to create desire for those commodities, but it has to be, it has to intersect, it has to be heightened, to be leavened uh, with what he calls the difficulty of acquisition. Right. So again, the snake infested valley, there are other tropes like magnetic mountains that lurk underneath and trap unaware sailors. All that was a kind of apparatus that was like a product placement and increased the desirability, the frisson uh, and the mystique, I think, of uh, precious stones and not uh, insignificantly uh, also justified the exorbitant prices uh, that consumers, collectors had to pay for Orient uh, stones. Mm. Yes, very important to understand the practical incentives to having these stories. As these networks continue, right, you know, Marco Polo is one of the first people to travel as far as he did from Europe, but... um, as you mentioned, that this very much increases as time goes on. So how does that change the stories? I mean, at some point, do people realize that the snake infested stuff is probably more show than real? How does sort of the myth of Prester John live up to increased knowledge and travel? Right. Actually, that's a good question because in some ways it uh, it addresses, uh, I know you wanted us to talk a little bit about what I'm working on now. So um, there are a number of things that are pieces that I wasn't able to fit in this book. So one of them is uh, has to do with precisely that material with Prester John, the legend of Prester John and Marco Polo uh, in imagery and in maps. And I trace that kind of history History between the 13th and the 16th century, that is the Middle Ages and the early modern period, also to show that there isn't a kind of radical break uh, there. Um, so what happens, uh, you could say in general, perhaps that myths are very hard to let go. Um, they're kind of sticky. They have a way of enduring, right? Their appeal is sort of continuous, even when factual knowledge uh, disproves them. Uh, and the two are not necessarily mutually exclusive. So you can have, you know, the two uh, living uh, side by side. So, for example, Prester John, that's a really amazing history. So at the beginning, he was thought to live somewhere in uh Eastern Asia, uh, and there is actually some, uh, you know, basis in reality. He's thought to be a kind of uh, chieftain uh, in uh, in East uh, Asia, engaged with battles that matters little. But anyway, so Europeans started to look for him. So the Polos and other writers who went to China, can we find uh, Prester John? No trace of Prester John. So slowly he started to move to Africa, to Eastern Africa, Ethiopia, what was known as Ethiopia. And there again, he lived or people thought he lived, uh, you know, for some time. Then again, they couldn't find him there. So then he migrated toward Western Africa. And I only mention that because uh, you may know, our listeners may know, that Christopher Columbus set out famously with the intent to find the realm of Prester John. In other words, that myth really perdured, and it perdured hard in the sense that what was only sort of fictional, fabled representation in the 12th century, uh, of course, translated into the very harsh reality of colonialism, the colonial enterprise, and particularly the extractive side of colonialism. So that's a little bit, you know, what I want to want to trace with this, uh, with this uh, piece. Uh, Christopher Columbus, uh, actually, so he set out to find the realm of Prester John. 
He thought, of course, that he had found the Indies and their mineral riches. And also he took along or he took as a guide the travels of Marco Polo. <laughs> so again, this amazing, right, convergence of uh, things, uh, you know, that produce, that are representations, but end up producing uh, very real effects. Absolutely. No, that sounds like a fabulous thing to continue tracing. So thank you for sharing that with us. Is there anything else you might be working on, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like our listeners to be aware of? Uh, there does not have to be. I, I mean, that's a big project. I, <laughs> I think it would be maybe the topic of our next conversation in 20 years or so when the next book is ready. Fair enough. Well, we will look forward to that. Um, But in the meantime, we can all read the book that we've been discussing as it is available, again, titled The Mineral and the Visual, Precious Stones in Medieval Secular Culture, published by Penn State University Press. Brigitte, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Thank you so much, Taylor. That was wonderful. (laughs) 